Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is an incredible woman. She is an author, an educator, an entrepreneur, and an activist, and a mother. Uh, Jenna Arnold, she lives in New York. Oprah named Jenna as one of her top 100 awakened leaders who are using their voice and talent to elevate humanity. I am so excited to chat with you today and really dive into this book that you wrote, launched, and get into the belly of the beast. The book is called Raising Our Hands. I'm excited to chat with you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So it was ironic that I that I asked you how you were this morning, and I'd love for you to repeat your answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, happy to. We are one day after seeing the longest rerun in American's history where institutions are taking the lives of black and brown folks, primarily men, at a much higher rate than white folks. And I was saying to Rebecca that here we are another morning trying to process what 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 happened, what's always happened, and how the hell we're going to go forward. But the truth is, is I'm fine. My coffee's hot. I'm in a comfortable sweater my kids are not home. So I don't know. It's just another one of those days where the question about how are you feels just a bit insufficient. And sometimes I like to turn that around and ask how your heart is doing. So maybe you have thoughts on that, Rebecca. I do. I think, um, you know, how are you doing? And I'm guilty of it because I asked you the question has been, you know, just sort of like saying, hey, Mm -hmm. uh, to so many people and most people don't answer honestly. And when people do answer honestly, there's usually a pause of like, oh, I, I, did, I just thought you were going to give me a quick answer of height mm-hmm. of like, I'm great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was refreshingly surprised with your answer. I try and be honest as well. But it's true. We should be asking how your heart is doing because not everyone is having, having a good day. Right. That's right. And even still, it's almost like the how are you question is like, oh, I see that you're alive. And I say that flippantly and absolutely inappropriately trying to be funny because, again, we're coming off of another day where law enforcement, who is meant to protect us, took the life of an innocent man. You know, the how are you just feels like it's a it's a social dance versus really because I think the truth is, and we can get into this later, we're also desperate for community. And I would really love to be able to be like, well, you know, I'm confused about who I want to be when I grow up and I'm scared about the state of the world and what kind of impact can I really make? And here I am having just put out, you know, a 400 page book about like how everyone has power and purpose, yet I'm still sitting in a state of like, hmm, do I? Totally. Uh, I think when you see what's going on keep occurring, uh, it can feel hopeless at times. So I'd love to get into the book and talk about it. It's called Raising Our Hands, and you wrote this book for white women. Can we talk about what your message was to us? Sure. Well, thank you for being open to having this conversation, which will be ongoing for the rest of our lives. So I wrote this book because as Toni Morrison suggested, you need to write the books you're desperate to read. And I have spent the past 10, 15 years 
surrounded by activists representing marginalized communities and so many different social issues. And for so long, I heard about the greats, whether it was Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, saying things like white folk need to go and get white folk and no one's interested in being gotten, so to speak. But this idea of like, what are we doing to mobilize within our own demographics? And then coming out of the 2016 election and definitively out of the 2020 election, there's just so much segregation amongst folks based on the news network you watch, based on the country club you go to, based on your religion or the schools your kids go to. And there's just not a lot of cross understanding about life experiences of people who might look different or pray to a different God or grow up in a different zip code um, here in the States. And because of that very intentionally designed boundary setting that happened in the early 1900s, particularly related to subsidies that came out of World War II, we just don't see the truths of other folks until they land on our television screen. And then it's just like a protest in Southeast Baltimore. And we're not really quite sure how to connect the dots. And so because I had so many questions about how I was supposed to operate in this country, in this world, how could I contribute the best of myself to the greater good in this lifetime? And I know that feels like so like deity, like, please, like I fall down rabbit holes in Instagram. I like expensive jewelry too. But you know, how can I still show up and be the best of myself today? I needed to understand the role that Barbie houses played as a kid, you know, my daydreaming of my wedding day since I was a child, you know, these, the relationships and excuses that I made for my boyfriends throughout middle high school, undergrad, you know, my relationships with my brother and my father and my husband, how I'm raising a son now. So to really understand how some of the narratives that were intentionally laid and then the cultural contexts that were laid on top of it and then sort of where me, white, advantaged, you know, middle income, high, uh, you know, upper middle class spectrum, what I'm supposed to, like what position I'm supposed to take on the front line. So that's why I wrote the book so I could understand it and hopefully offer other folks some insight as well. So in the book, you talk about how we can show up and be active and compassionate members of society. What do you feel is the most effective way that we can do that? It's different this minute than it was almost three months ago than it was certainly before the presidential election. But I I do think that there is a universal stance that we can all take in perpetuity throughout the rest of our lives, which is this like position of curiosity. And it And what I mean by that is this desperation to constantly understand and ask more questions, knowing that our understanding will always be incomplete, and which I find a tremendous amount of freedom in, is this idea of like, I I don't get something, so I'm just going to pay attention. I'm going to lean in harder instead of it being like, oh, forget it. I know, you know, we're not going to be able to figure this out. And you know, revert back to binge watching Netflix. And a good example is um, when George Floyd was murdered a year ago, there was a tremendous amount of discussion like there is today on social media about what are we going to do? What does defunding the police mean? And one of my friends posted a 13 point plan about how to reallocate resources to different kinds of services that could help deescalate violence and mental health services in place of police officers or very specific types of violent law enforcement. And like two days later, I went to go repost it on my feed and I 
she it she'd taken it down. And so I texted her and I'm like, hey, where's that thing? She's like, oh, I pulled it down because step seven and step eleven need a little bit more fleshing out. And admittedly, traditionally I'd be like, oh, you know what? If she can't figure it out, there's no hope in us trying to solve what it means to reallocate resources related to keeping our community safe. And that would be a great excuse for me to like not pay attention anymore. And instead it's an opportunity to lean in super hard to follow the leaders and ask the hard questions and show up when we're asked to and just wait patiently when there's nothing for us to do. You know, you mentioned the division in this country. And and I say this currently, I'm in a state that uh, wish the election went the other way. And I think on both sides, there is the, if you don't believe me, then, you know, let's fight about it. Rather than many years ago, there used to be the ability for people to disagree and still find common ground, find civility. And now it is, you know, it is basically like, I hate you if you don't agree with me. Yeah. So what would you suggest? How do we get back to a place where people can have different views and it's okay? Or I'm not saying different views on, on the subject of your book, obviously, obviously not that, but like there's so much divide that almost everything becomes a hot topic that doesn't encourage communication. And that can lead to a whole host of other issues. It's complicated because, you know, I certainly feel like there is so much at stake for any given issue, right? So if you show up and say, oh, well, climate change isn't a thing, I'm a little bit like, wait a second, I would die on that mountain. Or if someone shows up and says like inequity isn't a thing, like, again, I would die on that mountain. So there's this, there's this space of like, where you agree to disagree. And I'm really okay, if obviously, it's not for me to say, but like, you can pray to whatever God you want. You can allocate your resources to whatever charity uh, you want. You can be whatever kind of professional you want, non-professional you want. But like, there's certain things that we have to hold the line with. And I, and to me, it is people who throughout history, certainly in my parents' generation, definitively in my grandparents' generation, though there were, you know, more World War II, post-World War II, so there was a little bit of a different survival mentality. But there is a lot of, oh, let's just agree to disagree and talk about that back nine holes at the country club today. You know, and instead, I think there's an opportunity for us to hold that front line and do away with our perfectionism and our performance. An example I'll give is, you know, sometimes I'll hear people, women in the listening circles that I hosted to do the research for my book, which I hosted more than I can count, but it was listening circles across the country. And I divided the the different groups up into very stereotypical categories. So like super rich Jewish women outside of Cleveland or young evangelical moms, you know, in Connecticut and just got, cause I wanted a, I needed a little bit of group think because if there was too much diversity of opinion in a room, people would hold back. So what I would hear is, gun-owning, gun-loving women say, of course I'm screeching inside about what's happening in our first grade classrooms and on the south side of Chicago, but I don't really understand gun show loophole or background check, so I just don't talk about it when it comes up. And my invitation to her is, oh, no, 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 you don't ever need to understand any of the policy because truthfully, there's probably like 
100 people who understand it in incredible depth. You just need to hold the line that you're not okay with what's happening in our classrooms and, and on our city streets, and you don't have to move from there. And the position you can hold is, this doesn't work, we need, we need something new. This doesn't work, we need something new. And you just don't, that's your like backboard, that's your backstop if, you know, you, if you imagine like a basketball net or just don't move from there. And that's not a place of like, oh, let's agree to disagree. It's a, I don't think this is working and we need to do something else. Have you heard of any other interesting solutions putting people on the spot? And there's a little bit of just, again, like I said earlier, leaning into the questions versus being the soapbox of like professionals. Like there's a part of me that through COVID, I am a self-proclaimed COVID czar in my family and in my community. So I can get very mouthy about who is doing what and shouldn't be doing what. But the truth is, is whenever someone's like, well, that's not how COVID works. My response isn't like to rattle off facts about what Fauci said, because my belief is that like Fauci's best guessing his way through this too. My response is always, are you sure? Are you sure because it doesn't look like the data is out yet? Are you sure that the Second Amendment applies that way when we look at what happened, what's happening to our first graders? Are you sure there isn't racism at the, you know, built into the foundation of our Constitution? Are you sure? And just posing that question is a little bit of a, like an invitation to Jenna to be like, are you still sure about your beliefs on all of those things? But it really pushes the person you're in conversation with to dig even deeper a bit, because that's what we want them to do is to move to a space of like uneasiness and gray and I don't knowness. Because um, the American narrative has always been like, Rebecca, you should know how to do everything perfectly. You should be able to check all of the boxes. And if at any moment you're insecure, there's something wrong with you. And instead, like, and that's like literally at the root of the stories that we tell in our textbooks, right? Like our textbooks tell us that George Washington was like seven feet, six inches tall, 0% body fat and always knew what to do. That's not at all what was that was like, right? Or like Abraham Lincoln, he's the most revered president in American history. Well, it was on Lincoln's watch that the genocide of nation, the genocide of native nations flourished out in the West, right? So this idea of just saying, are you sure versus being like, I hate you turn off Fox, you know, like it's just, it's not going to work that way. And I think role-playing vulnerability and that, are you sureness or that's not my understanding, or I, I want to understand your position a little bit more shows them that you're willing to be vulnerable because we need people to be more vulnerable with each other. Cause truthfully, Rebecca, nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. Truly. It's best guessing our way through the state of the world. Yeah. Well, on the vulnerable front, I do want to dive into, you know, I think some, you mentioned these focus groups, but I think there's so many women who maybe have caused harm or mm -hmm. are scared that if they're going to get active, they'll cause harm or they'll say mm -hmm. the wrong thing and they'll cause harm. And so that breeds inaction. So what do you advise, you know, women who are like, I want to support, I want to give a voice. I'm afraid to say the wrong thing. Early on, and I'll just be vulnerable here, early on when when George Floyd happened and we were still in a state of shock, I was worried I was going to say the wrong thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I had a lot of conversations with team members about making sure that I wasn't saying or doing something that was just going to contribute to the problem. Yeah. 
Well, and that's the right position to take, right? Like, so a couple of things. You're concerned you've caused harm, you have. You con- you're concerned you will ca- cause harm, you will. So if I can give us all white women the freedom to know that those kinds of things have happened and they will happen. Um, so move away from trying to not do those things and better position yourself to identify where you did wrong and to catch yourself before you do it again in the future. So I like to think of people more as like goalkeepers and less as referees on a on a soccer field. So instead of deciding how players are supposed to move, being like your thoughts and your actions, just position yourself in front of the goal and be ready to catch them, whether they're biases or if you post the black square or if you say something wrong or if you hurt someone's feelings. I think a more productive and forward moving position is to know how to clean up when you mess up. And an example is that professor lying out at UCLA, it's this analogy that he uses that I love around implicit biases. So explicit biases are biases that like, you know, you have, like, if I say to you something like, who are bad drivers, or who's been known to, you know, how has media characterized terrorists recently, like, you have two people in your mind. And I would argue that 99% of you have the ones that I'm exactly intending for you to have. But then there's the implicit biases, right? Like as you read a name on a resume or implicit biases related to who you think can be leaders. And those implicit biases are actually the more dangerous ones. And what Professor Lang suggests is it's almost like how you've structured your kitchen at home where the dishwasher is close to the dish cabinet. You don't have the dish cabinet like on the other side of the island where you have to walk around or like there's a trash can pretty close to wherever you do the cutting of the vegetables type thing. And so this idea that you organize kitchens to make your work in that space most efficient. And the truth is, is we have to clean up our kitchens after breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, all day. It's the same thing with biased thoughts where it's like, if you have a thought, the position is, is you want to be a goalie and catch it and then figure out what cabinet you, it needs to go back into. And at some point those thoughts might not come anymore. Or at some point you might be like, oh, it might be because of my grandfather used to say this, and then my mother said this at all the holiday dinners, and now that's where it is. And, and so this idea of like catching biases and reorganizing them versus pretending like you don't have any. That's one. The second one is, is recognizing that you're going to mess up. And I, like, I have this book that I feel guilty as like, you know, taking down trees in the Amazon because it's so thick, but like, I've messed up twice in the past month and they weren't necessarily related to race. One was related to resources. One was related to socioeconomics of a friend. And I had made an assumption that was wrong. And the next day I texted and I was like, Hey, I think I'm, I think I said that I've been thinking about it. I'm sorry. Let me know if there's anything else I can do. And so there's four words you say when you mess up, I'm sorry. What else? I'm sorry, what else? Because Rebecca, we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up. But what do you say to the people that have messed up and then they're canceled? (laughs) You know, like I think it also can feel like, okay, you're already scared to mess up. Then you look around you and you have all these examples where women messed up, maybe didn't say, I'm sorry, what else? And then gone, (laughs) like never to reappear again. Well, I think, I think there's, uh, I mean, you and I both know those folks and I, I think there's, there had to be at one point a sort of 
series of examples of harm that wasn't going to be allowed in professional spaces and in personal lives. But I do believe that if there was a forum where any one of these folks said, I'm sorry, what else did I either do or what else can I do to make it better? Yeah. There might have been a few minutes of a bloodbath, days, weeks, whatever. But that's the kind of leadership that we need. And I do, I am of the belief, Rebecca, that cancel culture is moving on. I, I don't think we did a very effective job during the Me Too movement around the accountability, the long-term sustainable accountability perspective. And what I mean by that is we did a lot of like, that dude did that by verse saying, okay, how and why did society give him permission to think that he could do that to people. And there wasn't this like crossover moment to understand the root cause of abuse against women. There's masculinity scholars out there who talk very much about man box culture, toxic masculinity, this idea of dominating or being dominated. And I never saw the public get into the sphere of talking about that. And that's what the Me Too movement could have also done, which I think would have pulled the circle back to the other side. And so when I think about making mistakes as a brand, as a public individual, as, you know, just a friend of friends in a community or in the country, that there it, it's going to be very hard. We are at a long-term reckoning long overdue in this country. I don't think it ends anytime soon. Rebecca, I think you and your team, you individually as a mom, as an influencer are going to be up against this question many, many, many more times in the next decade, as we all should be. Like, this is just the torch that we all are going to have to bear because our parents didn't do it. And I think the I think the idea is is it's instead of being like, I'm sorry I posted the black square, it's I'm sorry I posted the black square and pull it, pull it down. And be like, mm, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. And I think if we can start leveling up and showing how, you know, canceling people and brands, like they don't disappear, like they don't vanish. And we also know that capitalism is very generous. There is collateral damage from this moment. But I do think that there's also ways for people to say, I'm sorry, what else? I think that's perfect. Um, and I think that's good advice and tips for people that are scared or people that have messed up and are still scared. Yeah. Women Amplified's inspiration-packed 30-minute episodes feature conversations with the smartest and most successful women out there about issues that matter to working women now. We explore everything from leadership to transitions, career advancement to self-care. Produced by the largest network of women's professional conferences in the country, Women Amplified brings you both top conference speakers and real women like you year-round wherever you are all in just 30 minutes, all for free. Find Women Amplified on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of free, we're offering listeners of the Super Women Podcast a chance to win a free ticket 
to one of our upcoming virtual fall events. Visit conferencesforwomen.org slash superwomen to learn more and enter. That's conferencesforwomen.org slash superwomen. I want to touch on one last subject before I let you go. And that is, you know, you talk about how even from a young age, the educational system, the, uh, you know, what our kids are being taught, what you and I were taught was uh, pretty one notey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I look at we're both moms, we're both working, we're both busy. Like, how do we how do we get access to and and help support if we're not going to overhaul the school system ourselves, unless that's our new job? You know, where can people who want to change or who want to see education shift easily access resources that might have a different view, if you have any? Yeah. So this isn't an intentional plug. I just needed the cheat sheet for myself. If you go on JennaArnold.com, and I think it's like backslash resources or something, but you can like navigate your way through the site to get to it. Um, there's a whole host of like, here are the voices that you need to follow. And I update that page constantly because there's new voices that are emerging daily. And so there's easy, like, here's their Instagram, Twitter, Facebook links. So just like follow all of them. So like, as you're scrolling through, you know, your camp friends, baby photos, like you're also seeing messages about trans rights and things like that. And then at the bottom, there's a series of books around um, that I have read to my kids. And my poor five-year-old, she knows more about, you know, what happened to the indigenous than her teachers do. Um, And again, that's just another function of our education, our higher degree education universities. We don't often talk about how to teach some of these complicated stories. And, you know, Rebecca, to your note, like we don't teach, we teach enslavement nationally at fourth grade. So we don't really have to talk about it. We teach what we did to the indigenous at second grade. So we don't really have to talk about it. And I get into it with her, you know, I'll talk about inequity and, you know, when Holocaust Remembrance Day, like I'm not like throwing down language, like genocide, this is what gen or like rape as a weapon of war. Like we're not there. We will be one day, but we're not there. And so I do a lot of just taking the conversation and the story and rewriting it myself. Please tell us all where we can read the book, where we can follow you. So JennaArnold.com, there's lots of buy the book links and they all go to small bookstores. Obviously, we know that one place that you can just add it to your card and it can be at your house the next day, but we're all trying to diversify our uh, resource. Um, you can find me on Instagram at it's Jenna. I don't tweet because I spend a lot of time on very right and right wing news outlets. And um, Twitter is not a nice place for democratic voices on those right networks, but I do have a handle there and sometimes I'll read tweet things. And that's just Jenna Arnold. But other than that, it's at it's Jenna on Instagram or JennaArnold.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your knowledge, and obviously your incredible book with all of us. And I encourage everyone who's doing some soul searching, who wants to change, who wants to get better and contribute to change to not only read her book, but there are so many other incredible resources out there that take that first step if you're scared it is uh it's a better journey if we're all equal doing it so thank you so much thanks for listening everybody and don't forget to head over to rebeccaminkoff.com show your love and support for the brand buy something for yourself buy something for another 
And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birchboxes, as well as our site.